Forward Guidance is brought to you by VanEck, a global leader in asset management since 1955. You'll be hearing more about VanEck ETFs later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. Very happy to welcome to Forward Guidance someone who I've learned a lot from from his podcast, Dean Kernut, CEO of Macro Risk Advisors and host of the Alpha Exchange podcast. Dean, great to meet you at last. Happy to be on. Big fan of Forward Guidance. Looking forward to the uh, conversation, Jack. Me too. So you, I know you, you have this, this view of the bond market as the central risk asset, and you do a lot of work in, in volatility. But what did you mean when you say that the bond is the central risk asset? And how does it inform the rest of your views on, on asset, the asset classes? Yeah, so I, I've been in the, in the derivative space for all too long, you know, th- 30 plus years before the VIX even became a thing before, well before all these episodes of crisis that are supposed to happen once every hundred years and happen once every you know five to seven years. And I've thought a lot about how risk-off events materialize. Where do they come from? Is there any alpha to be had in trying to devise a, a mosaic that helps us appreciate the why of them? You know, where they might originate from, what's the severity, and then what's the defense plan should you see one coming? And a lot of my work tends to think about the, quote, risk-free asset, which let's call that the treasury complex. That's at least what we were taught in the textbook. And then the risky asset complex, which, you know, we can just say the S&P is a shorthand just because that's where almost all the wealth and liquidity is. But what we know historically about the risky and risk-free asset is that they move in opposite directions, right? So risk assets generally do okay until something disruptive happens in the economy, with Fed policy, perhaps a natural disaster, a geopolitical shock. And so that's going to send the stock market down, perhaps fast. And then the bond market becomes this flight to safety asset, right? It is the recipient of capital that's running away from the risk and volatility that suddenly hit the S&P 500. And so what you see is typically a scenario in which the stock market falls and the 10-year, let's use that as the base sort of risk-free asset rallies. And so if you run correlations, especially post the GFC, between, say, the S&P and the TLT, you'll see a decidedly negative correlation. Honestly, upwards of 40 or 50%, if you're just running the correlation of the daily returns, you're going to be minus 50% or so. And that's a very, very powerful diversification tool, right? When, When you can put two assets into your portfolio, both of which are going up over time. And that's certainly what occurred you know, post-GFC all the way into, into COVID. And they're negatively correlated on a daily basis. You've kind of got a nirvana, right? That's the sort of foundation, the bedrock of 60-40 are these two assets that contribute positive return, but are negatively correlated. And that, negatively correla- that negative correlation serves as a pretty good risk reducer. To get to your question, why do I call the, the treasury market the risk-free asset? It's because that correlation has flipped. And that's really a post, I would say, 2022 phenomenon. So you start to map these correlations and they're zero to on the order of 30% positive. It's a pretty profound switch, right? So what happened in 2022 specifically, I think the stock market, s and down 18%. Bond market's probably down about the same Fascinating, right? You've got these two assets that are supposed to both go up and be negatively correlated, and now they suddenly both go down 
together. And so it seems to me, and the data bears this out, that the stock market really takes direction from the bond market rather than the first and more traditional scenario, which is the bond market moves are more a reaction to the stock market moves, right? There's <clears throat> there's a growth concern. There's a, a shock to sentiment. And the bond market is the recipient of flight to safety capital and rallies on that. Now, the bond market is either rallying or falling in value, and the stock market is following suit, right? We all know <clears throat> that what, what happened in October of last year, this giant bond market rally occurs, and it brings the stock market with it. And so I'm not sure that's good or bad. I, I don't think it's great because per unit of risk uh, or per unit of capital, you have more risk now, right? And boy, just about the entirety of the financial system is based in some ways on being able to sprinkle out some capital in both stocks and bonds and having the bond market be your kind of rainy day vehicle. And that, I think, has changed. And I'm not sure how that changes back, but it's certainly something I think we're supposed to keep a, a close eye on. Thanks for laying that out, Dean. And, and how big of a deal is that, depending on the following, what percentage of investors are you know, there's 60, 40 investors, maybe they do it themselves, or they have a, a wealth advisor. And at the end of the month, they say, hmm, actually, my bonds and my stocks declined. That's that's a little weird. But it's on a 30 day basis, or maybe they, they only check it every quarter, or even every year, they pay much less attention to that they were much less dependent on the negative correlation between stocks and bonds. And on the other side of the folks you have, and I know, you, you know, you work with, with institutions, you have hedge funds who are you know, doing correlation trades and leveraging up, you know, 10 times on the basis that there is a negative correlation. So they're basically, you know, extremely long both or extremely short both. And if that correlation doesn't work out, you know, there's a margin call and they get screwed. Because I imagine if, you know, most of the, you know, the entire investment world was on the 60-40 kind of more less volatile spectrum, it would be that big of a deal. But if everyone was doing these extremely advanced trades, I imagine that that would cause some hiccups. Yeah, I think you make some great points there. Number one is if you're long-term enough and you kind of close your eyes and don't open that statement, you can probably get past this, right? And I think, <clears throat> at least for me, and I'm old enough to be a little bit of a traditionalist, I suppose, I, I look at the treasury market and I look at yields, which start with a four-handle, and that to me feels like a much more normal version of where market pricing should be. Uh, I'm not never was a big believer in zero policy rates, especially for the length of time that they persisted post the GFC. I think there's a fair amount of malinvestment that comes from those low policy rates. I think markets, if anything, they're going to lean into, and I'll just say they're going to lean into forward guidance, right? Mm -hmm. um, big time. And the promises of the Fed are, are very real. The Fed has the ability to just make the prices up with, with the degree of capital that it has in a you know completely non-mark-to-market, completely price-inelastic fashion. So I'm happy with with rates where they are. I think this is just a, a, a more realistic way to run a financial system. You know, to the point around um, the trades that are built around it. I don't know that there's a huge series of exotic trades that are banking on this correlation that can just you know run them up. There obviously is the world of risk parity, um, which is often painted with a very kind of monotonic brush. And it's a lot of different things. There's, I think you kind of alluded to it, there's different leverage 
degrees of leverage that are taken in the product. People rebalance in a different way. I think the way when, when I come back and I think about the, I don't want to say the words danger, but what makes me uncomfortable about seeing the bond market lead is that we've got a stock of debt right now that it's just really difficult to argue unless you're just so far off into the MMT crowd that that 33 trillion amidst higher rates and the need to turn this money over and the need to continuously re-auction paper is not a real threat you know, to, to the system. And so when you see, and I'm not someone that follows auctions very closely, but suddenly this is now part of the market's dialogue, right? Why did the S&P go down? Well, the five-year auction didn't go well. That wasn't a thing years ago. So suddenly the stock market's taking its cues from the bond market. And I just think the fundamentals of the bond market, while there's, it's, they're fundamental, the prices are fundamentally better in the sense that we've got real interest rates now. The real interest rate is not zero or negative, it's, it's positive. But I think the fundamental backdrop in terms of the economics of the United States are the fact that we ran a near 7% budget deficit in peacetime with a 3.8% unemployment rate. That's just not realistic and that's not sustainable. And that's the base asset, right? That's the, the US Treasury market. So that's kind of how I mean it. I don't, the, the flip of the causality of risk on, risk off to me is a concern because the bond market is just not healthy. And a lot of it's just the fiscal dynamics in the US. What are you observing in the bond market that, you know, I, I know you pay a lot of attention to, you know, to the stock market and, and you know, I should introduce you. You're, you're an options and derivatives veteran. But let's see, we have an inverted yield curve. What else are you seeing in the bond market that is a little strange? And yeah, I mean, are you, are you seeing any, anything in the, in the sort of you know, options, the call options, pull options, the, the skew in some stuff like TLT or HYG? Well, let's maybe just do a very, very quick rewind. And I'll try to do this very, very fast. So we come into COVID and vol is very low. The VIX is at 12. Credit implied vol is very low. You know, guys like Bill Ackman, who famously bought all this credit uh, default swap protection, kind of paid a song for that protection in February of 2020. So he took 25 million and, you know, created a windfall of 2.5 billion. A lot of that is because that vol was so low that those options were just low in price. Interest rate vol, extremely low. COVID hits, VIX of 80. The move index, which is sort of a quasi VIX in the rates market also balloons, you know, the, the COVID crash was about a joint crash in stock and bond prices. And I think we got our first whiff of real fragility in the bond market during COVID. You saw dealer balance sheet capacity vastly eroded. You saw really record levels of realized volatility in the treasury market, even surpassing the GFC. And so at some point, even the market that the risk-free market, which is so deep and so widely subscribed around the world, even that loses its capacity to be a shock absorber, right? Because the folks that need to provide that insurance themselves are compromised. That's the, that's the primary dealers. So we get through the, the COVID shock. And again, back to the forward guidance idea, you know, at no point was the Fed's promise really more, really stronger than by, let's say, early 2021. You know, rates are low and they are going to stay there. Remember the famous Powell, we're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. 
And so that makes its way into option prices. And by late 2020, early 2021, the move index is at 38 or 40. That's extremely low. That's that's basically calling the ten the moves in the tenure about two to three basis points a day. Okay, that's extremely low. You know, we get through 2021, and of course, now the Fed realizes it's way behind. It starts the tightening cycle. Rate fall is much higher in 2022. But to me, what was very fascinating was SVB. I know you focused a lot on SVB. You've had some experts really digging in on SVB. And I just want to say, what keeps me going in this business is it's you can always learn, and it's very humbling. And you know, I think that there were folks on Twitter who had done the work on SVB, and we're looking at it and saying the mark-to-market losses here for a bank that has got way too much treasury exposure, having bought a lot of this stuff at uh, yields of 1.25%, some of this paper, right? I mean, by the time you get to four and change percent on the 10-year, it's just very easy math to realize that, wow, these are big, big, big losses. So you get the the up move in rates, which takes SVB out. And to me, what's so fascinating, and I think it really speaks to some of my process about trying to understand the overlay of derivatives into markets, is that the upshock in rates takes SVB out. It pushes the Fed way off its tightening cycle. It's a risk off. And what do we get on the back end of it? We get one of the more vicious rallies, let's say in the two-year note, we've ever seen. The two-year note inside of I'm going to say three weeks is 125 basis points lower. And that takes out hedge funds who had sold a lot of all, basically betting that there's no way that two-year rates can go down. Because the Federal Reserve is, is continuing to hike and, you know, what's going to it's happen? free money. Yeah. You know, I'll get paid some option premium. And so, you know, when you're a short vol, that can introduce uh, convexity into the market. It can be an accelerant into the market. And so that rate vol move was extraordinary. And people who are experts in, and I've looked at this a little bit myself, there's really only one other equivalent to something as violently up in rates and then back down in rates. And that's the crash of 87. That's a pretty good, that's pretty good company you're keeping in terms of severity. And so what started to happen after that was, I would say the fabric of the treasury market started to it's you know display some some tension. I would hear I talked to a lot of people who trade this stuff for a living. Bid offers are wide. You can't get stuff done. Option prices reflect that. So this move index spent a lot of time well north of 120, 130. The the ratio, for example, the move index to the VIX is something I started following, not as a signal, not to predict anything, but just to have a little metric to keep track of. And just to illustrate that over time, you know, we switched to this environment where interest rate volatility was much higher than equity volatility. It's a totally nonsensical concept, right? The risk-free asset is more volatile than the risky asset. In 2023, the TLT had, I think it was about 20 days where it moved up or down by 2% or more on a single day. The S&P had a single... 2% 2% up move and a single 2% down move. So it's an inversion of the cause and effect. And I'm not definitively saying it's good or bad. I don't think it's good. I think your treasury market is supposed to be not volatile. Now, 
you could argue we're getting to the end of the Fed tightening cycle and easing cycle is upon us. The move index is down at 105. So some of this stuff is just time. You know, you're working through it. And, you know, you can argue that there'll be less volatility in the treasury market going forward. We'll see. But I think it's, again, it's just something we got to keep a close eye on. Like gold did, Bitcoin is establishing itself as a macro asset that potentially helps hedge against the government devaluation of your money. Finally, you can easily access Bitcoin in a low-cost ETF with the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, ticker HODL. Search the ticker HODL in your brokerage app today. Visit vanek.com slash HODLFG to learn more. That's vanek.com slash HODLFG. Now the disclosures. Investing involves risk and you could lose money on an investment in the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, also known as the Trust or HODL. The value of Bitcoin and therefore the value of the trust shares could decline rapidly, including to zero. You could lose your entire principal investment. For a more complete discussion of the risk factors relative to the trust, carefully read the prospectus link below. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. All right. So the VIX is a measure of implied volatility for the S&P 500, where the market thinks or what the market is pricing for how volatile, how up or down the stocks will be. Of course, down tends to be more you know, volatile than, than, than up. And uh, the move is, is that for, for bonds founded by, by Harley Bassman. And yeah, tell us, I, I didn't know that the move in bonds was so extreme. The only parallel was 1987, uh, talking about Silicon Valley Bank. I, I, I knew that it went from the market pricing <clears throat> tons of, let's see, it was, it was March, so maybe the next meeting would have been May, t- pricing a likely uh, hike in May to even pricing that not only would it not, the Fed not hike in, in May, that a cut in May was more likely than a hike in, in May. And I, that may have only been true for an hour, but I'm you know, pretty confident. I remember seeing it on, on the CME. And uh, yeah, that, that must have been a pretty extreme move. <laughs> what, what else did you hear about it? Yeah, no, it was extraordinary to see the, the way the curve shifted in and around March and, and into April of uh, 2023. So you had you know, at least one, maybe an additional hike priced in before it. And then I think at the, the peak of you know, the disruption of the cycle, we got to about four eases priced into the end of the year. Now, of course, none of those eases was fulfilled. One of the hikes actually was fulfilled, right? And so the market obviously can be extremely wrong. You know, it's a it, it, market prices, what I've learned are really simply where a transaction is suitable for two counterparties to find a way to meet. So they are predictions in some ways but they really, to me, reflect um, capital availability. So you can see some outrageous prices that are, you know, very high relative to what you think is fair value or very low, depending on how hard you have to coax a buyer or seller uh, into the trade. Um, I think what's interesting, and, and it, it sort of to jump to now, we've got, of course, six six eases priced in, right out to. Jan 2025, six and change. It was seven. And as we were just saying, in, in April of 2023, we had at the, the peak four cuts priced in, none of which were fulfilled. So some are arguing, well, if the market doesn't, if the Fed doesn't deliver on these cuts, that's going to be very disruptive to the stock market. Okay. I mean, I get the logic, but last year, those cuts were not delivered on. Right. And the S&P, I think, was up 15 percent, even in the second half of the year, might have even been more. And so it's 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 not a done deal that if we can't fulfill these cuts, it's a big risk off. Right. I think that's just 
I think it's, I think we've set a high bar at six. I think it's going to be pretty hard, but it's not necessarily it, the last year will tell us it's not necessarily Armageddon for the stock market if we don't get there. Yes. And so the big difference between the price, the cuts priced in now versus the cuts priced in in March and April of, of 2023 is that the Federal Reserve has blessed these cuts, not just with, you know, innuendo and, and forward guidance, but specifically a dot plot, which is, you know, it's, it's worth something. Sure. So this is great that we can connect these two topics of Fed cuts and the stock bond correlation. Okay, so in 2008, in March 2020, you have the Fed cuts during a stock market crash. So that is rates down, prices up when stocks prices down. So that is a negative correlation. In 2022, interest rates went up as stocks went down. So that's a positive correlation. Last year, the Federal Reserve continued to hike as stocks went up. So that's a positive correlation. So, so the positive correlation last year really helped out stock investors. So, so you're, you're saying that if the Federal Reserve doesn't cut by as much, what, which correlation would that be? Sorry. Well, yeah. So let's maybe talk a little bit more about 2023. So the bond market had a, a whipsaw of a year, right? I mean, by mid-year, the bond market was uh, on its knees. There were significant losses again. It was really that rally in and around October, which was pretty ferocious, that allowed, I think, rates basically finished the year where they started, right? So it's a, you know, it's it's a big old zero, but with a pretty bad sharp ratio because of all the volatility. So it was sort of a break-even year in the bond market, obviously a great year in the stock market. I do think we were kind of close to a, I don't want to say a breaking point, but things certainly were getting worrisome. Again, around October. And some of this was the late August. Um, some of it's the refunding announcements, the, the you know, the, the bear steepening that came from that, right? In, in terms of the long end coming up, mortgage rates getting to levels we haven't seen in decades. So I think there was quite a bit of worry on the stock market side that, you know, absent some big rally in the bond market, things could, you know, potentially break, so to speak. I think what hasn't happened yet, and I'm not an economist. I just try to talk to folks on this stuff. Is the impact of interest rates on the real economy, right? I think that's the head scratcher. That's sort of the open question here, which is, okay, are we still in a, the, the lags are long enough and variable enough where we still just don't know? Are we kind of waiting? A lot of people talk about the CRE cycle and that being the first one to really experience the difficulty of refinancing at a much higher cost of credit. The mortgage market kind of seized up, right? So it's just like the housing market doesn't break because supply comes down by so much and prices stay sticky because there's just nothing for sale. So the demand for what is for sale, you know, keeps prices high. And the corporate economy, they just, they, people were very, very successful. CFOs were very successful in terming out debt at once in a century. It, it, you know, it's the, it's the, homeowner's equivalent of the mortgage, right? Uh -huh. You've got very low cost capital, which at some point becomes higher cost capital. But I, I certainly, again, I'm not, not an economist, but I'm scratching my head saying, man, you know, you raise rates by 500 basis points and the economy barely slowed down. You can argue that the stock market fell because the multiple fell, which is consistent with higher rates. But here we are back at an all-time high, right? It's, 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 it's a pretty fascinating kind of setup here. Again, a lot of people will say that there just wasn't as much duration risk 
in the economy through the homeowner and the corporate. So the rate increases haven't mattered as much, but we were coming from such, you know, again, century low in rates to something that was so substantially higher. I would have thought there would be more real economy impact by now. Maybe it's coming or, or maybe not. I don't know. So did I, and so did pretty much everyone. So yeah, there's more, the, the, debt in the system had a longer duration. So for liability, for obligors, for borrowers, it was it was actually better because it's like, oh, I don't owe this until 2040. I don't have to refinance until 20, 2030. The pain, ironically, was on the bond holder. So really, so really the bank. So this whole narrative of, oh, the interest expense is going to go up so much and companies can't afford it. It's like, well, a lot of them, if they're in real estate, they use an interest rate cap and th- these are expiring, you know, as, as we speak. A lot of them, you know, they, they have a fixed to floating structure, so it doesn't turn into a, a floating loan until later on. So, you know, Amazon issued a, you know, a bond that doesn't expire until 2052. The homeowner has a 30-year mortgage. So, yeah, a lot, I think a lot of that has been blunted, but, but we'll see. It's, it's, it's anyone's guess. I'm in the same camp, just trying to understand, you know, how, how this plays out. I did see sort of an, an interesting argument around Fed policy and just... A, Back to this notion of we, we raise rates by so much. Was it raising rates that brought down inflation, or was it really the unlocking of supply chains and, and that sort of stuff? Um, you know, this will be a, 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 an argument forever about uh, was it truly transitory or not? You know, everything's transitory over a long enough timeline. We know that much, <laughs> yeah. right? I think it, John Mayer Keynes' quote is, is, in the long run, we're all dead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's sort of like calling for an episode of financial crisis. At some point, you're going to be right. <laughs> yeah. You know. So, all right. So speaking of financial crisis, that makes me think about options. Let's talk about equity derivatives. So like the bond market, the stock market has been on an absolute tear since the beginning of November. And as when stock markets tend to rise or soar, realized volatility tends to be low. I, I tell, tell us why that's the case. And then implied volatility tends to be low. So that's why the VIX is, I, I don't know what it's at, but let's say 13, you know, I'm, that's a lucky number. Yeah. So what is your uh, outlook right now on why implied volatility is so low, why realized volatility is so low, and what it's going to be going forward? Well, I, I've, I've uh, had an opportunity to teach a class on um, options and episodes of financial crisis for my alma mater, St. John's University. And I try to keep the, the sort of discussions on options simple and away from differential equations and things like that. Um, I didn't learn it that way. I try to think logically. And so my example of, of, of how to teach this, I always go back to car insurance. And so Geico's in the business of making money, Allstate's in the business of making money, and they're going to evaluate the driver or the pool of drivers based on what? The premiums that they take in and then the premium, then the, the loss payouts that they pay out, right? The, when there's a claim, whether it's theft or an accident or damage or something like that, right? And again, they're in the business of making money. They're running data historically. They're experiencing um, accident reports and so forth. So they know that when they take in all this premium, they're not going to keep it all for sure, right? They're, they're ab- absolutely ready to pay out. And the question is, how much will they have to pay out? So I think about realized volatility. So the experience of the day-to-day changes, we'll use the S&P 500, that's kind of like the frequency of accident in the Geico example. How many accidents is the S&P having? 
if it's only had a single up, up move of one of 2% and a single down move of 2% over the last year, that's not a lot of accidents. To give you an idea of an accident heavy period, during the, the teeth of the COVID market crisis, we had three straight days of 9% moves in the S&P. A down, a down 9%, an up 9%, and a down 13%. That is just epic in terms of volatility. And if you're- and what is that on a realized basis? Something like- Yeah. Yeah. So over the course of a month, we realized north of 100 vol. And there's a little widget that we use, us derivative geeks. You take your 100 and you just divide by 16. I won't get into why, but 100 divided by 16, it's telling you that over the course of that month, the average move was about 6% per day. <laughs> right. So you go through these periods where there's a, not just a pile up, but there's a pile up of pile ups in, mm-hmm. in, in car crashes. There's not that happening right now. Over the last month, the SPs realized less than 9% in terms of its annualized standard deviation. So I'll divide the nine by 16 and I'm going to get kind of 50, 60 basis points a day, right? A half a percent a day over the last month. That's not enough to scare anybody. Maybe putting it a little bit differently, if I'm the seller of that insurance, I'm emboldened by the fact that at 50 basis points a day, I'm never paying out on the insurance. I'll sell someone a put. It never expires in the money. I don't have to really hedge it. There's no, you talked about Harley Bassman, the convexity maven. There's no convexity to hedge because the market's not moving. And so competitive forces in the market say, well, Maybe the VIX started at 16. Boy, I made a lot of money selling it at 16. Maybe I'll sell it. It went down to 15 because more people jumped in. They saw I was making money at 16. And so competitive forces push it down to a level that's a little bit more commensurate with the here and now risk, which is very low. And so we've got this setup where implied volatility in equities is extremely low. It's I just think about market prices is very much reflecting the experience of engaging with them. So if I bought the VIX at 16 and I lost money, I'm just less inclined to do it the next time, right? And so this is the feedback mechanism. And so we've got a, you know, a, low, a low VIX, low option implied volatility, and all these things are really our shorthand ways for the market to talk about the price of insurance. The VIX is very simply the cost of option insurance on a one-month basis on the S&P 500. It's kind of a blended metric, but it's going to give you a, a sense as to what it costs to insure your portfolio, which right now is low. And many people, it's easy to argue that it should be low because the market right now is not moving. Crypto's premier institutional event, the Digital Asset Summit from March 18th to March 20th, approaches rapidly. If you're planning on attending with a team in London, you might want to check out our general admission four-pack. It's the most cost-effective option if you're looking to maximize your company's footprint at this event. For four tickets, it's just £2,500, a 10% discount. And then if you use my code FG10, you get an additional £569 off. Click the link in the description to learn more. Use code FG10 and grab three colleagues and head to the world's leading institutional crypto gathering. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. So you said there's a feedback mechanism where people, they sell volatility, they make money, so they sell more. The volatility continues to go down. But, you know, the VIX, you can't go to zero, right? Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, theoretically. Now, it's, it's, it's interesting. You, you get close to the lower bound, which the history of the VIX will tell us is about nine. We, we had this left tail event <clears throat> in options, meaning, you know, when we, when we 
uh, left tail of low vol. So when we typically talk about left tail events, we, we think the VIX went to 80. That happened in GFC. That happened during COVID. 2017 was this fascinating year where the S&P w- was up a fair amount, but was up on one of the lowest levels of experience volatility in 50 years. I think you have to go back to the early 60s for something as quiet as the S&P. And so the sharp ratio, I think the S&P was up 20% that year and the realized volatility was six. Okay, so this is, a, this is an S&P that's moving more like 30 basis points, 40 basis points a day. So just take 20 divided by six and you know, you're gonna get a sharp ratio. You know, it's back of the envelope, but you're gonna get a sharp ratio of three, three and a half for just owning the S&P 500. Not a lot of research you need to do. It's as liquid as could be, buy the SPY, no fees. That's incredible. The sharp ratio is on selling volatility during 2017 were even better by many counts. Again, depends on how you measure it. Could have been four or five. So, you know, you get these periods where vol can be extraordinarily high or extraordinarily low. And 2017 was one, I think the VIX closed 50 times out of 250 days below 10. That just doesn't happen very often. So we're close to that. You know, we're at 12 or 13, but not, not, not quite there just yet. Right. And what st- when it goes to 10, I mean, wh- why can't it go to zero? When it, when it was at nine in 2017, yeah. I know I'm kind of setting you up. What happened that that caused it to, to bounce? And how does that phenomena build if, oh, this, you know, there's an idea dinner at hedge funds and someone's made a lot of money selling vol. Oh, I'm going to sell vol. And then this becomes shorting volatility becomes a very crowded trade until everyone is short volatility. So there's no one left to short volatility. And then there's an accident and then it implodes. Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you why the VIX can't go to zero by virtue of uh, a little story I like to tell. And some of it's a, it, it's, it's a bit of a skeptical story about our industry. This stuff's hard. You should be humbled by markets and cycles. And you're really trying to add alpha at the edges. If someone tells you they've got this strategy that never fails, you know, or they've got an option strategy that gives you some incredible hedge for zero cost. Well, why would that be? You know, how, how, how can you possibly manufacture that? And that actually was a big part of a lot of my concern. I'm typically too early on trades, but a big part of my concern with that negative, deeply negative correlation between the stock and the bond market that we saw in the post-crisis period was that people were using duration as a positive carry hedge. Bonds. When you say duration, you mean yeah, bonds. Yes, the bond market. And look, it's hard to argue that it wasn't. It was delivering a low coupon, but positive coupon. And it was consistently rallying in a risk-off. That's a beautiful characteristic. At some point, and SVB will contest to this, at some point, the price of the treasury itself becomes so high, the yield so low, that it's kind of a toxic asset at that price. Um, but the only insurance that you can truly count on is one is something you pay for. And I say, you know, you buy you buy a house, you're, you're excited, you just got your mortgage and your mortgage lender tells you, hey, listen, you know, you are gonna have to insure the home. And so you call your neighborhood homeowner's insurance broker and you ask for some pricing and you say, okay, well, what's the premium? And they go, nothing, zero. <laughs> okay, well, obviously it's probably not insurance if it doesn't cost anything. And so at a zero VIX, it's basically literally telling you options don't cost any money. I think 
you know, the, the interesting question is how low could it possibly push to? And I think in 2017, we explored the boundaries of that. Now, I've been doing this for long enough that one of my sayings is market, the market is a never say never business. Whatever you thought was possible, don't ever think you can't go beyond that, whether it's a risk off or a risk on. I mean, we saw the meme stock episode, right? That should, that should tell us that these things can get outrageously out of hand at a point in time. But one of the things in terms of my own process that I really do incorporate is just that market prices and the trades that built around that are built around them are living and breathing um, parts of the, the ecosystem. And what I mean by that is the Soros concept of reflexivity. Market prices aren't just a forecast. They aren't just a function of supply and demand, but they themselves make their way into the fundamentals. They become part of what moves the market and especially derivatives trades, market prices, let's just take vol, right? So 2017, as low as the VIX was, it turns out, as I said, the sharp ratio for selling vol was extraordinary. And there was a story probably mid 2017 uh, in the Wall Street Journal about a store manager from Target. And the this gentleman was essentially long this ETF called the SVXY, which is a product that effectively sells vol in an ETF. It sells VIX futures. The thing went straight up. And he's like, this is fantastic. You know, you, you can't lose. Enough people get long that, right? A, a good deal, a good outcome is going to attract capital. And it almost becomes self-fulfilling. We've seen it in Bitcoin, right? Enough people see that their neighbor is successful. It's the FOMO. And it drives the price up. It creates the success that drives more people in. And that, I think, is especially the case for carry trades and short vol. And so the, you know, the unwind of that 2017 low vol is a very famous um, experience called, some people call it Volmageddon, but the VIX ETP complex collapsed in February of 18. And in five or six short days, the VIX went from about 11 to 35. And it does, there's not a lot of precedent from that. There's maybe one or two other episodes where the shock higher in the VIX is that substantial. Nothing happened in the economy. There was nothing geopolitical. The Fed had nothing to say. It was just the product itself that ate itself alive and tried to buy so many VIX futures in a robotic fashion. There was no liquidity. It just drove the price higher. Very similar to the unwind of GameStop, right? That the short covering dynamic became so substantial that you you create so much pain for the Melvin Capitals of the world and create so much excitement for the Roaring Kitties and his legion of fans that you get into that spiral effect, right? And it can be nasty, you know, depending on which side of it you're on. Yeah. And is there is there a dynamic where the people who made the bets in one way make money, so they have more money to continue to bet in that way, and the people who made the bets in the opposite way, they're running out of money. You know, I think, for example, there was a time where buy, buying short-dated call options on GameStop had, I'm sure, had a phenomenal sharp ratio until it didn't. And you know, there was a point where people were buying a thousand strike call options on GameStop, and when those eventually uh, expired, worthless, they didn't have any more money to buy GameStop, so it it, it fed fed on itself, I guess. For for people like me, that episode is one of the most fascinating things. I'll I'll never stop thinking about it and studying it, because as you referred to, those option prices were so heavy 
at some point, the price is so expensive, even with the FOMO, even with the degree of momentum in the underlying, the ticket costs so much. It's the, 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 it's so difficult, right, to, to break even. You you reference the upside calls. I'll actually also point to the downside puts. So when that mm-hmm. stock got into 200 or 300, the long dated two or five strike put. So it's hundreds of points away, costs something like 50 cents or a dollar. I mean, the prices, you've never seen prices like you know this before. I will say just sort of thinking about my philosophy on convexity and you know what I try to ask myself all the time and what my clients I think are asking me to help them think through is are options worth it right is the price worth it and it's a question it's a rhetorical question right I can come at it in a number of scientific ways and I do with data I think about you know it is it worth it in sense of okay? What am I insuring? How volatile is the asset I'm insuring? Options on on Netflix are going to cost a lot more as they should than options on Colgate Palmolive, a stock that really doesn't move. Right, toothpaste, mm-hmm. <laughs> not exactly very exciting. So it, the underlying asset obviously matters a lot. Some forward looking assessment of what's going to happen. I'm not in the prediction game, but you can't help but try to you know read as much as possible and try to think through what those those tails might be, either to the upside or the downside, right? Is the market leaving something on the table in terms of how it prices the distribution? And maybe it's just my own tenure in, in markets. I've just been through a lot of episodes of crisis, but I find people so flat-footed through these periods that back to the Bill Ackman example, you know, mm-hmm. a, a wonderful trade. I mean, an incredible, incredibly timed trade to 25 million to 2.5 billion. What did he do with the 2.5 billion? He actually plowed it right into the market at the depths of the COVID crisis in terms of the market had sold off. And that to me is what vol is supposed to be. You can't buy vol all the time. It's going to eat you alive. It's too expensive. But if you can be tactical and thoughtful about it and then use it to make yourself a more empowered buyer into a market that is on its heels and no one else can buy but you, and there's value there. I think that's kind of the idea of trying to utilize optionality on the long side, at least. Being long optionality, being long convexity, generally, you said you'd be eaten alive. It generally has a negative absolute return. And being short options generally has a positive absolute return. It's just that it's, you know, you, you can get blown up that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Over time, there's a thing we call the vol risk premium, the VRP. It's it's discernible in every risk asset. And again, Geico wants to make money on insurance. The seller of options on cattle futures, on corn, on the S&P, on gold, all of these folks over time are in the business of providing that insurance, essentially taking that gap risk to accumulate profits over time with the knowledge that they're going to be wrong sometimes, and they could potentially lose a lot. We know about the, the kind of skewness of asset returns, where the largest down move is, is more negative than the largest up move is positive, right? So the losses to the short vol guy can be substantial. They can be violent. And so sizing becomes a real, you know, a real consideration. The, the, the landscape of 
the graveyard of short vol traders is real. There's also a graveyard of people that have bought vol and you know mm-hmm. and, and and spent money buying volatility. So a lot of it really does come down to being thoughtful on on sizing as well. And you know, look, I tend to think that markets are very efficient. The options market's very efficient, but I do think that there are better deals. In other words, I think that there's value in helping people think through trade construction. And so what I try to do is I say, okay, well, the S&P 500 is where most of the wealth is, right? I mean, there's obviously real estate and art and the bond market, but to me, the base risk asset is the S&P. That's what people are indexed to, whether they like it or not. That's also where the liquidity is in the options market. And guess what? That's also where the drag from owning insurance tends to be the highest. Really? Because because everybody wants it, because it's the most obvious form of protection. In some ways, it tends to be the worst deal. So it's liquid, and that's important. I think as a hedger, you've got to find a way to monetize your trades very quickly. I find people do stuff that's way too complicated. And so the interest in hedging starts with the S&P, and that leads to a lot of drag in terms of performance. And so you try to think about these proxy assets. What are the assets that are going to do well in a risk off consistently, right? So, you know, we talked about the the treasury market. Now, that of course that correlation is flipped. That's not nearly as reliable as it used to be. I think ultimately it will reexert itself as a risk off asset when we suffer a growth shortfall, right? If and when the medicine of higher rates actually works its way through the system and the economy actually does start to sputter. Listen, I'm open-minded on that. I wasn't last year. I certainly thought we would be, we would have more of a slowdown than, than we do now. But when you look at the period where the bond market did its best as a hedge to the stock market, it was what really when the risks of growth shortfall were top of mind for people. And that was, you know, post- Post GFC, even though it was a generally low vol period, we were constantly worried about deflation or too much disinflation. You know, the economy was kind of sputtering a little bit. It was the two percent real GDP for for many many years? Other assets, right? Credit. You know, we we could look at options on credit or even just buying credit default swaps as a proxy for being short the stock market or being long mm-hmm. equity exposure. You know, sometimes I'll look at gold. I think gold's got some very interesting characteristics. So it's about trying to find a deal that might have a a better financial setup than options on the S&P. I find that to be, you know, the starting point for the process. And a lot of it's just back tests. You know, it's very hard to forecast things, but you try to just put the grid together and look at the numbers in a dispassionate, you know, from a dispassionate framework. Yeah. And what are you seeing in credit right now? Credit volatility, obviously the credit default swap complex, I believe is not what it was prior to the great financial crisis because there's regulation about, you know, it basically, I think it holds, you know, you have to have more capital to to hold these positions, but you can look at call options or put options on a a high yield ETF or there are even, you know, ETFs or products that are just the credit spread. So it's kind of similar to credit default swap. Um, and I, I believe I read in, in Bloomberg that a some very you know boring safe company just priced an investment grade bond yeah. at the lowest spread ever. So you know talk about credit stress. No, there's no you know there's no financing stress at least in the investment grade bond market. So so is you know would it would it also be true 
you know, I know that credit spreads have narrowed consistently over last year. So maybe is realized volatility low in credit and is implied volatility low too? On both of those fronts, yes. Not not as low as it it has been. It's not a record low. It, you know, it might be some version of equivalent to the VIX sitting here at 13 and the low VIX being nine. You mentioned, so I think it was Procter & Gamble that priced yeah, that yeah, yeah. paper. Probably a safer bet than the U.S. Treasury, to be honest. <laughs> uh, at least it's trying to run a positive, profitable enterprise. So the, you're right. There's a couple of ways to look at credit protection, right? There's options on credit, and that's a OTC universe. That's what Bill Ackman utilized so effectively. Pricing on that is not all that transparent. You, there's certainly trades that go through the market. You can track them a little bit more than you used to. So post the GFC, the it was the Treasury created this swap depository registry that allows you to see prints go up after the fact. But you know a lot of this stuff is sort of in the realm of the dealers, right? Who price this stuff and send out runs, and then they're executing on a OTC bilateral basis with clients. Right. So, and then there's an index too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a, there's a, uh, a, an IG CDX, right? Those, those credit spreads are low, not pre GFC low, but they're certainly low. And I think that's kind of one thing, if I were to step back and look at essentially what's happened here is the Fed found a way to raise rates, 500 basis points, obviously increase the cost of capital substantially for these companies, but the spread itself hasn't adjusted all that much. Now there, there are businesses and some of which are in secular decline, which have seen significantly wider credit spreads. But if you just take it on an index basis, you just haven't seen all that much, right? So companies are facing a considerably higher cost of capital, but that's just because the base rate is a lot higher. It's not that the the credit worthiness of the company uh, has widened a great deal, right? So that to me is very interesting that corporate balance sheet fundamentals and I, again, I think some of this goes back to what I referenced earlier, which is companies did a great job of terming out debt at extremely low rates. That's not going to last forever. Maybe the Fed easing cycle saves everybody, right? And we actually do get to those six cuts and beyond. Hard, hard, hard to know. But the HYG is another interesting one to look at. And, and as you referenced, Jack, that's, a, that's an index of bond prices, right? High yield bond prices, which have both an interest rate and a credit spread component. As we talked about the stock bond correlation, where it went from, you know, rates up, stocks down, you know, stocks down, you know, rates, uh, sorry, stocks down, rates down in the old days of correlation to the opposite where they're moving in the same direction. The same thing happened with credit spreads uh, versus rates. So you had this thing, I called it rush, rates up, stock spreads higher. That's mm -hmm. an atypical thing, right? If interest rates would go up, you typically have in, in the risk on risk off regime of, of yesteryear, spreads would come in. And so, you know, you think, okay, if, if I want to use the HYG, and I think the HYG is going to fall, I'm basically betting that both interest rates rise because there's a bond component here and spreads widen at the same time. I liked that a ton in, in 2022. I thought that set up really, really well. It, it, it worked. It didn't work nearly as well as I thought it, it did, but you did get that movement where rates went up and there was some deterioration in the credit outlook. Not a, not a recession type deterioration, but you know one that certainly had 
credit spreads widening. I think now with HYG, you're a little bit middle of the road. And I just would report what clients report back to me is a lot of frustration with that instrument. It just, it doesn't move enough to justify even option prices that are pretty low. It's got a very low implied volatility, but folks have found it, it difficult to, you know, to, to capitalize on, on a risk off basis. I'll throw, you know, just conceptually a trade. I, or just the concept of a trade that I really like. And, you know, the old saying, the widowmaker, right? I kind of like buying the widowmaker. I think that definitionally a widowmaker trade is priced based on the fact that a lot of people have had a bad experience with it before. And I kind of feel like VIX calls and VIX call spreads, there's a version of a widowmaker there where the VIX is very low. Not only has the stock market been very muted in terms of its volatility, the VIX itself has been very muted. So you could just run the realized volatility of the VIX. It's extraordinarily low in a you know kind of second percentile over the last five years or so. When the VIX is low, option prices on the VIX are low as well. So you have two things going on. The so that's vol of vol, is that what they call it? Yeah, it's, that's, what, that's what we like to call it. So the VVIX is your index and that's sitting there at 80 or so. So you combine this low VIX with this low VVIX and you get some pretty interesting economics for VIX calls, VIX call spreads. Again, these things haven't paid off. My own base case is to expect them not to pay off. That's not why you buy insurance, right? You're not mm -hmm. betting on it. You're trying to spend as little money as possible and get as much protection as possible. And for the reasons of the pricing themselves, and look, my view is 2024 is upon us. I can't help but think that this election season is going to be bruising and that I'm still in the, the long and variable lags camp. I just think that at some point, this stuff, even if the Fed starts to embark on an easing cycle, long and variable is going to start to you know, make its way into the economy. And that'll effectively have some impact on corporate profits. Maybe not huge, but you don't need a lot for this VIX trade to, you know, these VIX calls to work. You talked about calls, call spreads on the VIX. And you know, I'm saying this for the audience. There is no VIX that you can buy a spot VIX. You can only buy futures on that VIX. And so let's see, there's the February futures, the March futures, the April futures, as we record this in, in late January. And generally, March is going to cost more than February. April is going to cost more than March. It's a, the curve is in contango or upward sloping. So that also, it's a yet another reason why hedging is, is more expensive. I'm looking at the, the term structure now and 14. So, 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 so the spot VIX is at 13. You can't buy that. February is at 14. March is at 15. And then all the way going to September, it's at 17. So it generally, nearly always, or you know, very, very often is upward sloping. How upward sloping is this now? Because you know, if VIX is at 11, but in six months, it's the, the VIX future is at 21, you're not buying 11, you're buying 21. How, how cheap or, exp or expensive is that upward slope? Yeah, you know, Contango, it's a, it's a son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's a, it steals value from your trade. It's a thing in commodity curves. It's a thing in rates. Obviously, we're inverted now, but the resting point typically for the U.S. Treasury yield curve is Contango. You can say that the banking system functions better, much better in Contango. It's built on, on Contango. And the S&P vol term structure, especially, its natural resting place where it spends 80% of its time is in Contango. A risk off where, where realized vol 
explodes is going to lift the VIX relative to the out months. That's going to be your backwardation. They don't tend to last that long. The GFC, you've got a pretty lengthy period there, maybe nine months of backwardation. COVID was shorter in intense backwardation, but shorter. And here we are in contango. I would say we're middle of the road contango. I've seen steeper curves. I'm recalling, I want to say it's back in 2012, the VIX was at 13 and the one-year VIX was at 25 or so. <laughs> so you have had even more upward sloping curves, but the fact is it's punishing. You know, it, it's the roll down effect. With VIX options, there's a couple of things going on. The VIX is a very unique thing. It's forward starting one month vol. If you buy nine month VIX futures, and we'll just touch on the election for a quick sec, uh, but the nine month VIX future or 10 month VIX future, that's going to get you out into October, November. You're betting on one month vol in 10 months. That's just not something people bet on a lot. Occasionally, I'll see a six month VIX option trade go up and there's not a lot of liquidity out there. And it just doesn't seem to me to be a lot of motivation to say, well, in six months, I think one month vol is going to go up or down a lot. That just just doesn't resonate with most people. So for liquidity reasons and for logical reasons, most of the VIX action is going to be in Feb and March right now. So, you know, you're going to, the the curve is going to impose a, a point roughly, you know, per month on you for each of those months. It's still low, you know, you still, you still have a, you know, an entry point. I mean, for a long period of time, it was over a year, the second month VIX future was stuck above 20. You know, part of the COVID crisis, it it wrought so much um, capital destruction to the equity derivatives community. People that were short vol going in lost so much money that even as all these other metrics, we talked about the move index going to 40 in 2021, the, the VIX and, and sort of other metrics that are related to it spent a lot of time at very elevated levels. And I think that was a function of there just wasn't enough capital. Maybe it was in the psychology of fear where people weren't willing to step in. But finally, you broke it. And so now you've got, you know, your, not just your front month VIX future, but your second month VIX future well below 20. Yeah. Again, the economics of these things are that you usually lose. That's insurance. But I think the entry point is sufficiently interesting. Just touch on the election really quickly. I think, boy, it's it's going to be a rough one just in terms of us as citizens, right? We've got the celebrity death match here. No one wants it to happen. I want to just read to you. I just wanted to give you three or four New York Times headlines. Okay? Oh, man. Uh, from, and this has nothing to do with the New York Times. This is to do with, you know, where we are as a country. So- I just took just took a screen grab of these things here. So let me just pull it up. So this is the times from today. The looming contest between two presidents in two Americas, one headline. Second is Elon Musk is spreading misinformation, but X's fact checkers are long gone. And then the first one is by Thomas Friedman, incredible author and, and columnist. A titanic geopolitical struggle is underway. So, you know, geopolitical risk, political risk, almost always more bark than bite. You know, yep. the book, it finds a way. I just can't help but think that the U.S. as the centerpiece of risk does not make me comfortable, set against very skinny option prices. I think there's a disconnect there. 
it reminds me a little bit of cyber risk. How, do, how are you going to hedge a cyber attack? You know, what are you going to do? You don't know if it's even happening until it's happened. If you look at the VIX curve all the way out into October and November, there is what we call a kink. And it just goes up almost for no reason. And you could argue that the market is effectively saying that that first Tuesday in November is a special day and a potentially volatile day, right? So it's already making its way into market pricing. The event 10, 10 months from now is already making its way into market pricing, which is pretty unique. We, we saw it in 2016 a little bit. We saw it in 2020, but it's, it's already made its way into 2024's pricing. Yeah, I remember seeing that in 2020 and I was saying, what, what is that bump? And then maybe it's an example of, you know, actually in 2020, even though it was a very volatile geopolitical time, I think the S&P 500 just went up. It was an insanely bullish month. And so people were you, using volatility maybe as a, as a basis trade. They, they were buying the VIX, not because VIX futures then, not because they thought necessarily the stocks would crash, just they thought that everyone else would think it was in the same way that people are betting that there's going to be a March rate hike. Some of them believe that. Some of them just think other people will, will bet on that. Yeah, and I think that there's a certain category of market events where on a, on a CYA basis, you're, mm -hmm. you're told under no circumstance, be short that risk, right? Cover it off. I don't care what it costs. So I always remember back to Brexit, the period before Brexit, the, the, the central asset to follow to me to indicate the severity of, of the market's expectation around June of 2024, that vote was implied vol in the British pound. It got to outrageously high levels, so uneconomical to buy. And I just think of it as someone gets tapped on the shoulder and is like, listen, I don't care what it costs, just buy the put. You know, I want to be hedged. And I think there was some similar sense in it certainly made its way right at the end in 2016, where it suddenly appeared that, wow, these polls are much closer than we thought. Remember, people thought the, the Trump candidacy was doomed. And suddenly it was like, wow, this guy is actually might have something here. And you saw it emerge in the VIX then, and it certainly happened in, in 2020. That's, that's a great point, but just about probability. I think the Huffington Post had probability that Hillary Clinton would win was at 97%. Amazing. And that's going to show you no one ever knows what the real probability is. Right. And there, it's, it's, it's very humbling, right? I think we're supposed to be humbled by the stuff that we don't know. It's, you know, surprises, I think we're supposed to. And I think that's really what I try to do when I look at option prices. Most people live in the base case, the central tendency. You ask a strategist, what's the S&P going to be up or down this year? You know, that to me is your base case. I find that exercise to be painful for those folks because there's no sense of what's the path, how volatile the path is. Mm -hmm. I find it to be more fun and I just, I'm more equipped to think about the tails. You know, and it, it doesn't necessarily have to be the Armageddon tail. There's upside tails that we're supposed to think about as well. And, you know, when the pricing sets up, you know, I'm telling you, I'm looking at something in FXI, you know, that's a easy asset to hate, right? But it's also the price might reflect it. And so are there option structures that allow us to buy exposure in a risk controlled way to the FXI? There's an old saying, among option market people, take what the vol surface gives you, right? So I don't, I can't predict anything, but there's some instances when option prices really set up a trade. And there are certain structures in FXI where you can do call spreads that look pretty economical. You're getting good economics to be long the lower strike call and then 
finance some, not all, of course, of the premium for the lower strike call by selling off an upper strike call. So I'm you know, kind of starting to look at some of that stuff as well. The cheapness or, or relative expensive of, of your being long at a China ETF is based on the the skew of, of how much the outer price one is is if it's more expensive you can you can you know, use that to finance or more expensive on you know, on, a, on a relative basis. What when you look at the term structure or I should say the you know the, the skew of the S and P five hundred vol space. What are you seeing? You know, what are you going to take that the vol structure is giving you? I'm going to take a guess. You know, as we mentioned, realized volatility is low, implied volatility is low. But where is it on the wings? Like, what is the odds of you know the what's of, of a tail risk that the S and P would go down? You know, below three thousand. You know, in in a, in a few months. And also, if we're in a bull market, I mean, how cheap are calls? Are calls systemically underpriced in you know, in in an upward trending market? in the same way that puts are overpriced, even though there's a reason, there's a good reason that they're overpriced? So to answer your question on the skew, we can kind of think about the relative implied volatility across different strikes. And I made the point earlier that implied volatility is really, it's driven largely by realized volatility, right? It's the more a stock moves, the higher the option cost is going to be, the higher the implied volatility. The skew is similar. In other words, I can think about the implied volatility that the market assigns, let's just say, to an out-of-the-money put on the S&P relative to the -the out-of-the-money call as some function of the relative degree of the force of the up moves versus the down moves. Typically, markets move down faster than they move up, right? Escalator up, elevator down, right? Markets crash up, not down. 2022 was really unique in that Sorry, Dean, you, you said markets crash up. You, 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 say, oh, you want to say it again? Markets Sorry. crash down. Yeah, say mar- the start. yeah, markets crash down, not up. Except GameStop. <laughs> Except meme stocks. But 2022 was actually really unique in the sense that the market was volatile. S&P realized 24 on the year. That's a lot. It's about a percent and a half a day or a little 16 widget. Divide 24 by 16. But what was really unique is that the realized vol on the up days was about a point and a half higher than the realized vol on the down days. That's nearly without precedent. Now, again, in meme stocks, that's happened. For a giant index of large cap stocks, that doesn't happen. Not over the course of a year. And so there are a lot of things going on there. The why of it is the number of explanations, but the way it made itself into option pricing is it flattened the skew enormously. So if I'm thinking about buying a a put that's a 10% out of the money put, what vol do I pay versus a 10% upside call? I'm sort of looking at the the relative severity of the down move versus the upside. And I'm telling you this was flipped on its head in 2022. And so the skew got very flat where the upside call actually had a lot of value. People were Mm -hmm. buying the upside call because the market was jumping up. There was a day, and I want to say it was November of 2022, the S&P moved up 5%. It was one of these CPI days. You know, it was, wow, big relief. And, you know, the, the dollar crashed down, which was music to the market's ears. Rates came down. And the stock market, which was probably very underpositioned institutionally, had this giant rip higher. And so that makes that upside call worth a lot. So it makes its way into flattening the skew. Right now, we have a much lower vol dynamic. It's probably half, 
of what we had in November of 2022 in terms of implieds. But the skew is actually also pretty flat. So you're looking at out of the money puts might cost 14 or 15 vol. It all depends on what strike you choose. The upside call is going to cost you 10. Honestly, I, I like both of them. I think they're both cheap. And and again, I'm back to the Wittermaker. I would just acknowledge that selling those has been wonderfully profitable, right? To be short vol in 2023 was an, a very good trade. The pricing of vol did not deliver. So being short, it worked. Again, for a number of reasons, I like taking the other side of that. The big, biggest reason being, I think the price of entry is low. Yeah, I just want to explain something, which is so 2023 obviously was a bull market. Stocks rose. So when you said you, what you just said is selling puts, you know, and and selling out of the money, selling out of the money puts, selling out of the money calls, both worked. So, you know, some people may be scratching their head saying, "What? Why would selling calls work in a bull market?" I think what you're saying is because if you were hedged on the delta basis, so you're only your short volatility. You know, you're short the call, but you bought a ton of stocks, so you're not exposed directionally, and you kept on hedging. That's what you mean, right? Yeah, that's right. I think if you were just naked selling calls, and the S and P went up as much as it did, it's very easy to paint a picture where you, where you lost money. The, the delta run was enough, but if you have any little bit of stock hedge against it, the option premium that you were getting, which ended 2022 and started 2023, very high. Mm-hmm. You're getting paid so much, plus you have some. Delta hedge that's running you long, it turned out to be profitable. So yeah, I, I do say it a little bit more from a option vol traders perspective. What about the bull? You know, the not. What about the surge that started in I think the first of of November? I imagine volatility was higher again. And I always get this confused in options terms on a period about the the period of in question. Like if if stocks. You know, go up one percent and then go down one. If they go up one percent on Monday, go down percent one percent on Tuesday, go up one percent on Wednesday, go down one percent on Thursday, all for one month. I guess maybe the you know the realized volatility would be sixteen, but that doesn't seem that volatile to me. Whereas in November, maybe the daily moves were smaller, but that was a big surge. I mean, that that the uh, I think especially if I think it you know the like the twenty day. Uh, TLT plus S- half TLT half SPY. That was you know a historic move. I would say yes, a fantastic. Uh, that's where that positive correlation between stocks and bonds worked for you wonderfully. Yeah, look the way you know vol traders tend to think about this is you do tend to think about the daily moves. So you could wind up flat in a market. You know, again, we we could take the Treasury market of last year. The market didn't go anywhere, but in a lot of ways. The vol trader did quite well, you know, because you had these just historic SVB, you know, the, the November episode, the bear steepening episode of, of of late August into into November. So directionally, you could wind up where you started if your daily moves are big enough. The vol trader's idea is to monetize those. Mm-hmm. Now, there are times when option prices get so cheap that, and the and the market just trends higher, that you could do very well, right? Just owning it. So it really becomes a function of how significant the trend is. You've got to be consistently trending one way or the next for the option to work. Because remember, options as glorious as some of their financial characteristics are, this idea of being long gamma, right, is is an incredibly valuable thing to be able to have an asset that 
gets longer on the way up and less long on the way down. Incredible. Well, of course, the person that gave that to you wants something for it, right? That's the option premium. So as a long option holder, you're always fighting that time decay. And it's hard. I mean, it's a, it's a tricky thing. There's There's been a lot of option premium that's been eviscerated, certainly in 2023. And for most periods, you know, it, it tends to be a better time to sell options than buy them. But what we do know about these periods of these episodes of crisis is that they can come from, you know, any sort of any asset class can be the source of it. It can come geopolitically, it can come internationally, and they can be very, very substantial, right? And and so the other part is most of these risk-offs, when they get serious enough, I hate the word Fed put, but you know that the cavalry is coming, mm-hmm. right? And so you really want to be able to be a buyer of those outrageously cheap assets because at some point, you know the Fed and the Treasury they don't want the assets to further cheapen. Their game plan is to try to pump them back up, right? And so what you need to be able to do is put yourself in a position where you have the capital to do that. So what Ackman was able to do is, you know, protect his existing portfolio, but give him money to essentially execute on a shopping list of very, very cheap stocks like Hilton Hotels and so forth, where everybody else was selling them. Right, yeah, the a dollar worth the... A dollar at the bottom of the market, March 23rd, 2020, is worth more than February 23rd or, or, or April 23rd because you can buy it at those low prices. Of course, you, you, you never know it's the bottom. Dean, I got a final question about correlation, but just before I do, can you, you just clarify for the audience your perspective? My sense is that you say, okay, yes, being long options you know, hurts you in the long run, but often it can be worth it because you can get that dollar on March 23rd to buy... Hilton Hotels, but there are times when it's more attractive versus less attractive to be long volatility. My sense, just from what you're saying, is that you think it is a reasonably attractive time to be long volatility. Is that is that correct? Yeah. So here's what I would say. It's very difficult to pick a comp as appetizing as the pre-GFC period, 2006, 2007. You know, you had this powder keg of systemic risk building and the cheapest option prices in history, whether you're looking at credit, equities, FX options, you could have them for a song. Flip side, extremely expensive options in early 2009, as the system is starting to finally get its legs underneath it with great help from the Fed and the Treasury and committed to continuing to do it, you're forced to pay 40 VIX. So that's a really hard bar. Same thing in 2021. You know, still COVID, still worrisome. There's a lot of pictures of of distress you can still, or scenarios of distress you can still think about, but option prices are are very, very high. Here you have a situation where stocks are at an all-time high. Option prices are not at an all-time low. And I'm not suggesting that they're cheap relative to the almost motionless of the stock market, right? The market's not moving, so option prices are low. But I do think that there's enough on the horizon that gives me concern. And the two things are just the treasury market, all the debt we're starting to put on with no adults in the room, no adults on the political stage as well, and potentially the impact of of long and variable still not being felt. And the last thing I'll say is interest rates make their way into option prices in a kind of a sneaky way. And this is really not what the vol community focuses on, but there's this Greek called RHO that no one really talks about. 
But when rates move from zero to 5%, it actually does impact put prices and call prices. And higher rates make calls more expensive, puts less expensive. So for a given strike and expiration, that 5% interest rate actually lowers the put price by a not, you know, by kind of a meaningful amount. We're talking like 5% cheaper or how much we target? Obviously it depends. So yeah, so a three month, three month 10 delta put on the S&P cost about almost 50 basis points. If rates were zero, it would cost about 60. It's 20%, you know, it's not nothing. That's bigger than I thought it was. Yeah, it's, it's it, again, it's just such a gigantic move in interest rates that it actually is something to, you know, kind of think about. Mm, that's interesting. So my, my final question is about correlation. And, you know, if there are a thousand stocks in a basket and 500 of them were, you know, crashing 10, down 10% a day, but 500 of them were soaring 10% a day, the index wouldn't move at all, assuming they were all equally weighted. So I guess when, when things are positively correlated, that can increase volatility because everything is crashing together or everything is soaring to, together. What is the correlation like right now in the S&P 500? And also, can you address the often cited view that, oh, the S&P 493 isn't actually doing that well. It's just NVIDIA and Apple, which is somewhat true, but also, you know, it's not, it's not the S&P 493, I think it's doing okay over the past three months. Sure. Yeah. So you can look at index option prices and then you can make a comparison to, let's just use the S&P, to all 500 single stock options. So there's 500 about stocks in the S&P 500, each one of which has a, their own stock option. You do some math, you throw it in a spreadsheet, and you can effectively back out what the market, the relative price of the stock options and the index options suggests about how correlated the stocks will be. So if we think about an index, just like you said, it moves for two reasons. The stocks move and the extent to which they move together or not, right? Typically in low vol periods like we're in now, the correlation across stocks is very low as well. It's exceedingly low right now. So this idea of implied correlation, I can look at six month options on the S&P and I can back out given the six month implied vols on all the stocks and the six-month implied vol on the S&P itself, I've got this little filler I can, I can calculate. And that's the implied correlation, which is about 20%. That's about as low as we've ever seen it. Some of it's just because the market is, again, not, not volatile. Think about a period when stocks are up against COVID or the GFC, or suddenly you know, the economy changes or the Fed policy dominates everything. That's a macro variable that's going to move all stocks together. That's a higher correlation outcome. We certainly saw correlation a lot higher in 2022. As the Fed cycle matured and we got to what people conceive to be the end, the correlations come down a lot. I think when you talk about these top seven, the Fab Five, whatever you want to call it, I mean, it's amazing. There's five companies now that are north of a trillion dollars in market cap. Fabulous, right? But those five companies where so much of the wealth is in the triple Q and the S&P, these are historically top heavy indices. I think if you go back to something like 1970, maybe the tech bubbles end, you get something close to this, uh, but it's very top heavy. Even among these stocks themselves, they're not correlated. And I think that's interesting. Now, look. Really, really. Yeah, I mean, look, you could say Amazon and Tesla have very little to do with each other. 
NVIDIA and Microsoft, you know, NVIDIA and Apple, right? I mean, they're tech companies in a lot of ways, but it's never the case that NVIDIA has a big earnings beat or miss and the stock moves a lot and suddenly Amazon goes up or down a lot. That's a, that used to be the case where the stocks themselves pushed each other around a little bit more than they do now. And I think that's underpriced. I think because there's so much wealth in these and because they're so spectacular, we know about the old Howard Marks concept of benchmark hugging. You'd be crazy not to own these stocks. You know, you're putting your career at risk, right? And so people are net long these stocks. They have to be. Certainly Vanguard and BlackRock and all the passive indexes are giantly long these things. And that's where all the wealth is. And so I think the market doesn't necessarily price a correlated move of these stocks. And to me, that gets down to the economy. Uh, at some point, you have an economics, an economic downdraft that's significant enough. Again, I'm not predicting it. I'm just saying, you know, the, the, no stock can can escape an economy that's truly in recession, right? It's really, really difficult. The flight to safety ultimately will go to the bond market. It'll go out of equities, and that's a more correlated event. So back to my, it's all about the cost of entry, twenty correlation for a six-month option on the S&P, it's just extraordinarily low. And that feeds directly into the price of that option, the cost of hedging, which again, with no crystal ball, I just argue is just low. Uh, so when you said a 20 correlation, that's very low. I was thinking, okay, it's this magnificent seven doing well and the, you know, the S&P 493 kind of lag lagging about or maybe even declining. But you're saying that even Amazon and NVIDIA, even... Apple and Google aren't that correlated. That surprises me. Yeah, yeah, that's the case. And uh, and I've looked at it on on their earnings dates, big big wins or, or losses for for an individual stock. It just doesn't have a lot of impact on the other stocks. So so day to day, I mean, look the the stocks themselves are correlated. All stocks are, are correlated, but relative to how they used to be correlated, it's actually quite low. You know, at this at this point in time. Got it. Well, uh, Dean, thanks so much for for coming on. Uh, uh, people must check out your podcast, uh, Alpha Exchange. You're on Twitter at Alpha underscore X underscore LLC. Um, and your firm is, is Macro Risk Advisors. Uh, final question for you. What do you think is the most common mistake that uh, institutional investors make with options? You know, for, for retail investors, I'd, I'd probably say like, maybe just not rolling and having it expire worthless. But you know, when you're working with institutional investors, presumably they, they don't make those kind of mistakes. They have a game plan. What are, what are the most common you know, investing options mistakes that the pros make? Well, you mentioned game plan. And, and I think oftentimes there is not enough of a game plan. You have to have a budget. You have to try to be consistent. And sizing is critical. I think it's very easy, even for experts, to underestimate the sizing of trades because- these trades evolve in terms of their risk characteristics. So it might have started out a certain way and its exposure, let's say, to the underlying might have enormously increased along the way. It's time decay or its exposure to vol might have changed or gamma might have changed along the way. They're living, breathing animals and you've just got to really baby them. You know, you've got to nurse them all the way to expiration. But I would say sizing and budgeting and having a, a, a plan that you can execute on is, is a critical thing.
yeah, living, breathing animals, and they change more than any animal in the world. <laughs> Dean, thank you so much again, and thank you, everyone, for watching. Thank you, John. Thanks for watching. Remember to check out vanek.com slash hodlfg to learn more about the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, ticker HODL. A reminder that Forward Guidance episodes are available on all podcast apps and on Twitter, where I post them regularly at JackFarley96. Thanks again. Until next time.